Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Out of the Question podcast. I'm Andrea Schwartz, joined by my co-host, Steve Macias. Hello, Steve. Hi there, Andrea. Good to be with you today. Today's question can be phrased a couple of ways. Should we educate ourselves in opposing viewpoints? Or another way to say it is, is narrow-mindedness a plus? In other words, if we just know the Bible and we study the Bible, do we really have to go beyond it or the commentators that we like? I think the reason why this is even a question is because we as good Reformation Christians believe in the sufficiency of the scripture. And we believe that the Bible is the word of God. It reveals the answers and solutions to all of our problems we encounter. And therefore the scriptures should in a very real sense be enough. Now in our tradition, we say that of course the Bible is enough. It's sufficient for all things unto salvation. So a person need not look beyond the pages of the scripture to find Christ, to find salvation, to find the truth. And that is a Reformation principle that we should not take a step back away from, not even one inch. But the question I think we're discussing is when we're engaging with the world, when we have people who are not of the Christian fold, who do not claim the crown rights of Jesus Christ, who do not really even know the scriptures, is narrow-mindedness a plus there? And I think there are lots of situations that we want to discuss, but most of this comes down to, is there a benefit in knowing how and what other people think? So an obvious thing that people will say is, okay, I'll grant you that the Bible's sufficient to salvation. Of course, if they limit what salvation is, that's a problem in and of itself, probably a discussion for another time. But obviously, if you need to fix your dishwasher, or if your car's not working correctly, or you want to know how to do something, you're not going to go to the Bible and say, okay, tell me how I fix my car. I hear this clunk and it's not working like it should. So I don't think most Christians would even say the Bible is going to be the place you go for everything. But where the slippery slope comes in is when people say things like, well, the Bible isn't a science text, or the Bible isn't a history text. And so it looks like an either-or situation, and from what you just said, it's definitely not an either-or situation. Right, and it's an important discussion because on that topic of, you know, the scope of salvation, we often look at it the wrong direction. Dr. Rushduni in Salvation and Godly Rule talks about the scope of sin. You know, how far does sin go? And sin is not just something that uh, we do in terms of choices of choosing Christ or not choosing Christ or praying the sinner's prayer or not praying the sinner's prayer, but we can all imagine ways that we sin in really every part of our life. We can sin with money. So obviously salvation has something to do with money. We can sin with our relationships, adultery, infidelity, Um, So obviously salvation has something to do with that. We can sin in how we learn cheating, being dishonest. So really the question of narrow-mindedness 
is not helpful here because sin and the antidote to sin, salvation, applies to every single part of the human experience. And so unless we have some knowledge of how other people are living their lives, right? Unless we understand the worldview, how people think, how they react and interact with their personal truths or philosophies, then we're not really bringing the fullness, the strength and the power of the scripture into their life. So it seems to me that Christians, those desiring to be faithful, can fall into the trap that our opponents like to set up. So for example, let's take the big subject of origins. The Christian says, in the beginning, God. The humanist, secularist, our modern school system, they talk about billions of years, etc. So they refuse to teach another competing point of view. So I've heard Christians say, well, in my homeschool or in our school, we don't teach evolution. And I think that's foolish because if you believe the scripture to be true, you need to understand what the modern think is in terms of origins and the implications so that you can refute it with scripture. So the idea of staying away from unpleasant or what we consider wrong theories isn't necessarily helpful in terms of the Great Commission to go out and make disciples. You've got to be able to find enough common ground to show people the error of their thinking. And really, this is not just in the Great Commission, but it's in the very first commission there in the beginning of the Bible. The Lord, when he gives an example of how to teach, instruct, how to guide human beings, does not just give a positive Right? Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. What worldview instruction are they given by the Lord who's walking in the cool of the day with them? He says, don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? So there's the, the negative, don't do this, here's your, your piece of warning. But he also says that the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. And so the Lord is allowing Adam and Eve a little picture into the other side of the worldview. He's allowing them to say, all right, here's what obedience looks like, but also here is what disobedience looks like. And this type of, of thinking of holding the picture and the knowledge of obedience against the picture of disobedience is what Reformed theologians, whether it's Van Til or Clark, uh, whether it's Frame or some of our modern guys from RTS or Westminster, they call this the antithesis. And holding these ideas against each other, the, the good ethical promises against the negative ethical sanctions in all of life is what allows us to explore and interact with other worldviews. And it's necessary in there that Christians are not only learning about other worldviews, but becoming knowledgeable on how to react and tangle with those other worldviews. Okay, so let's bring this down to application. So give me an example of something potentially in your own life that because you studied it, because you understood the opposing view to yours, it enabled you to settle things in your own mind, but also teach and relate to other people. 
Some of our listeners can remember from past episodes that before I entered the uh, ministry, I was involved in politics. And so in order for me to be a, a proper staffer at any political campaign, it wasn't good enough for me to just talk about the platform of my particular candidate or my particular party. I had to understand uh, what the other side was teaching, what the other side was proclaiming, maybe even what the other side was sharing about us. And any ignorance about what the quote-unquote opponent was saying was truly a, a weakness for our side because folks are not just hearing your side. They're not just hearing your campaign slogans, your campaign platform, seeing your campaign mailer. They're also opening the mail to what your opponent says, your opponent's promises. And so by becoming knowledgeable, maybe of another party's platform, you know, how they felt on certain political issues, or even their schedule of where they're going to go, gave me insights on how I could underwhelm or overwhelm, how I could subvert or thwart their particular plans. Now, that's a, a political example, but a Christian should recognize that there's a similar cosmic battle where there are forces, principalities, and powers at work of spiritual darkness that are trying to undermine the Christian truth. And so just as a political operative might find information about the other side's platform, we should be actively searching into cults, into foreign religions, into worldviews of the secularists, and find out what are they doing to appeal uh, to men today, and how can we show that that path is, much like in the garden, the path of death and destruction. And I remember Dr. Rushduni commenting that sometimes his greatest opposition came right out of churches with people who he would call churchmen, who, because they had an antipathy towards the law, basically would come down on him for his view that the law of God is in effect. And those very people were at an extreme disadvantage when the enemies of God would bring up parts of scripture, specifically the Old Testament, which many Christians wanted to say they were no longer bound by, and they didn't have an answer to the various things that were brought up. So, for example, when they would talk about mixing the weave, or they would talk about dietary laws, or they would talk about certain things that were restricted between a husband and a wife, a lot of the quote-unquote New Testament Christians would say, well, we're not under that anymore. And then, of course, the enemies of God would have a way to undermine and say, well, I thought you said your God didn't change. So it's a good example of how the enemies of God do their homework, and oftentimes professing Christians do not. And that is really one of the warnings of Scripture, is that the demons know the Scripture better than most Christians, and so they can twist it and turn it. And so not only are Christians called to be broad-minded or, or wide-minded or open-minded as far as learning all they can about other religions, but there's also a warning there in being broadly learned on how to understand scripture. That means probably reading beyond just your own particular denominations leaders or your own tradition, understanding history for the 20 centuries that Christians have been writing, and of course the thousands of years of, of Hebrew culture before that. So the scripture tells us, have nothing to do with the deeds of darkness, but expose them. But then again, you cannot expose something 
that you don't know how to identify. And so how would you say that, or what would you say are the issues today that most people have shied away from because in their mind that's bad, but that they should understand and find teachers who have delved into it and have discussed it and written about it. There is a, a great number of issues that we could talk about, especially ones that you've already mentioned, like evolution or you know, creation science. Christians have typically seen those as adiaphora, that maybe good Christians of good conscience could read the scripture and come to different conclusions, uh, even though that those conclusions would be contradicting the great majority of Christians over history. But I think today, the greatest danger, uh, the, the, you know, the most pressing virus entering the church today has to do with human sexuality. Uh, human sexuality is a very important part of what it means to be a Christian, and it's really the center of the gospel. Christ came as a man uh, to die for mankind, and yet you see the attack on the gospel by the world is redefining what is gender or sexuality, redefining what is marriage, redefining the purpose of marriage, and that is certainly including procreation and families. I think that the Christian today has been bought in and tempted by a narrow-minded view of love that puts out any sense of Christian dignity in the idea of what it means to be a human in the image of God. Now, this is of course, important for us to understand because the challenge is really a gospel issue because the gospel is propagated through individuals who form families and those families incubate the faith in their children and those children and those families come together to form local churches. And so the secularists or the humanists of our age have figured out that if they can get to the individual and put a vision of individualism and its personal wants, desires, selfishness, greed, all of those seven deadly sins all put together in a way that is more tantalizing, that they will abandon the call to human sexuality uh, as a, a biblical norm. So I think it's easy to think that you really haven't delved into the other side, but you always are being bombarded in modern culture, in media, in print media, in social media, with alternate points of view that are coming at you. And so because there's a tendency to want to get along with people, to not constantly be at odds, I think kind of what you're saying is we give up ground without even realizing we have. That's right. Well, and he's not a, a Christian philosopher, but he's one that comes out with good little quotes every once in a while. But Voltaire once said that the, the way that you find out what ideas or what people or, or what worldview is ruling over you, just simply ask what group of people or what idea are you not allowed to criticize? And so for Christians, if you want to go from being narrow-minded to being uh, fully orbed, as a, uh, Abraham Kuyper would describe it, or to be a whole world and life view system, as he would describe Calvinism to be, if you want to go from narrow-minded to understanding how all of the world fits together in a gospel vision, then you need to ask yourself, what 
ideas in this world are sacrosanct by the humanists? What ideas are what we would call sacred cows? And if you watch CNN or if you watch MSNBC and you still haven't managed to pull out all of your hair, then you will see that there are a few gospel issues that you're not allowed to criticize. You're not allowed, you're not allowed to describe abortion as murder. You're not allowed to describe homosexuality as a crime. You're not allowed to describe gender reassignment surgery as mental disorder. And so those particular ideas have been narrowed in the secular mind as sacrosanct and therefore unquestionable truths. And the Christian has to understand how they got to that place and broaden his mind to not sympathize, but come down to the individual pieces of their argument and begin dismantling them from the root. And so we are always talking religion when we talk about any viewpoint, because something is going to be deemed right, something that's going to be deemed wrong, and there's going to be a code of conduct, a code of ethics. So the tendency now, especially in the last number of months where people have, in a sense, been isolated from other people and encouraged to be suspicious of other people if they don't agree with the current protocols, is for people to get very polarized. So how do you, as a person who is sure that the scripture is true, how do you not just dismiss all the other people who don't agree with you? And how do you build the necessary bridge to help them at least come to a point where you're discussing the same things rather than just dismissing each other? There's like an old adage that goes something, don't hate your brother for being where you were a year ago. And I think that's really where Christians have to recognize that save the grace of God, there you would be also. And to recognize that you're not a Christian or you're not a reconstructionist or a theonomist or a reformed Christian because of your great intellectual ability, but rather that you were rescued out of really the same thing that all of these people are struggling from. And that that kind of humility would cause you to say that the battle is not really individual facts against individual facts. And why can't people just understand this basic truth, but recognize that there really is a spiritual blockage, right? There is something in this person's soul that requires the Holy Spirit to come and do a little rotor-rooter and break through so that this person's heart can experience them. Now, that means that you have to continue to be, again, patient and humble and going out and finding common ground with the unbelievers, finding places where they truly have experienced God's grace, his goodness, his beauty, and everybody, even our terrible humanist philosophers can recognize that there is a great mystery and that this world exists and continues with God's providence. And so I guess the, the thing is we have to be so narrow and that we recognize that the Holy Spirit is the only thing that changes hearts and minds, but we have to be broad enough to bring that down to where people are at today. So not to confuse the admonition to stay on the straight and narrow path with being narrow-minded, you know, in order to stay on that path, you have to understand and, as you put it, 
be very certain of the fact that going to the right or the left is dangerous for you. So the idea of understanding where other people are coming from doesn't mean, well, if I'm going to be able to relate to the drug addict, I need to shoot up. If I have to relate to the person who's the alcoholic, I better go ahead and see what it's like to be intoxicated and, and rely on things like that. No, if our hope is built on Christ, then we have a certainty that says we can communicate this. And if we don't think we can, chances are we haven't convinced ourselves. Well, and, and that's an important part of, of evangelism. Uh, I think there's an there's a important part of bringing thoughts, ideas to their conclusions that we expect every good evangelist to do. You know, there's folks who do the whole sinner's conviction type evangelism where they say, you know, have you ever told a lie before? What does that make you? Well, that's really a simple way of bringing a worldview to pass. There's a, a quote that goes something like, can you imagine what I would do if I could do all that I can? And I know that's a very strange way to say it, but think of a humanist individual or just a lost teenager or somebody who has fallen away from the faith. Can you imagine, just for the moment, the consequences of their apostasy? You know, if somebody starts smoking cigarettes, we can bring that to its consequence. You know, they're going to waste a bunch of money on this. They're going to incur emphysema and lung disease. We can bring them to their consequence. By being not narrow-minded, we can understand that the man who gives himself to homosexuality is going to face a life of bitter regret. He's going to find himself in a place of despair and disease. He's going to find himself a place where he lost love and health and happiness. So the call of evangelism calls us to bring people's worldview to their consequences. And you know, this brings us up back to another pagan philosopher who wrote in uh, The Art of War, you know, this idea of when you're in this kind of battle, whether it's physical or spiritual, emotional or worldview battle, that you have to know your enemy. You have to know where they're going. You have to know what they will do in different situations. And so you have to run through your mind this kind of mental arithmetic of, if I say this particular supposition, how are they going to respond? If I call them to task on this sin, how are they going to defend themselves? And if you're familiar with all the tactics that the humanist or the evolutionary person or the homosexual advocate or the whatever sinner you might imagine, if you're familiar with their tactics, then you know the enemy and victory is certain. And so with the scripture in one hand and our tactics of what they might pull on us in the other, you know, we're really pushing them towards conviction by the Holy Spirit. I think the key word there is conviction. People don't do things unless they're convicted. And convicted is also a juridical term. In other words, when you stand before the judge and you're convicted, that means you are deemed guilty. And so the real aspect of reaching out to other people isn't so much to show them how I'm right and they're wrong. It's to help them get to the point to see that they stand guilty before God. And if that bothers them, 
then better than it, it's an excellent chance the Holy Spirit is operative in that person's life. If someone doesn't care, if they suppress the truth in unrighteousness so extensively, then we may be looking at somebody who is among the damned. But I think if we were actually looking at, we want to help this person realize they're going 50 miles an hour off a cliff. We don't want them to just slow down and go 40 miles an hour off the cliff because they'll just take a little longer to go off the cliff. If we really care to proclaim the truth that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that this person's wages continuing that way will be death and not just physical death, but eternal death. I think that's where we can narrow our focus enough to say, I've got to help this person see the consequences of the world and life view in which they operate. Right. And I'm, I'm glad that you kind of put it in that sense that of conviction, because in our kind of Reformation tradition, we all go back to the philosophy of St. Augustine, who said it in similar terms. He described two cities, and he said that there's the, the city of God versus the city of man, and that we're either a citizen of one or the other. And of course, Augustine imagines that the city of God will eventually grow and overwhelm the city of man, as is the case of human history. And so what we're positing when we talk about, you know, confronting or offering efforts to lead towards conviction is not really me as an individual going to war with a particular sinner, but it's more of the language that St. Paul uses, that we are really ambassadors of the city of God. And we're coming into the city of man and saying, much like you know, Abraham in the story of Lot, you know, this city is about to be destroyed. Leave and never look back. Um, because the idea of evangelism is not so much winning people over to the Steve Messias side or to my particular church or tradition or to my organization, but winning them over to the city of God and having them recognize that their, their war or their battle is not with any kind of conservative idea of politics or even a social identity, but that because they are really cursed by sin, that they are at war with God. And so we come in as these ambassadors and try to make peace in this war, rescue them from continuing to wage war with God, which they will certainly lose, and bring them into you know, the safe covering of the city of God. I mean, you think about that, that's a challenge that anybody who really understands their own salvation and are grateful for their thorough inability to do it themselves, but God interceded, then I think we can be calm down and not fight over the peripherals. I mean, today, July 2020, should you wear a mask? Should you not wear a mask? Is this going to, do we need to have a vaccination? Do we not need to have a vaccination? I mean, there are all these issues, but if we can calmly look at the fact that most people have this urge to survive, even if they, we think of them as being suicidal, part of what they do in their addictions or in their behaviors is try to survive. That as God puts people in our lives, that we make sure that we get beyond the current fad of controversy. 
You know, if I'm looking at somebody with a different color skin than mine, I don't have to dismiss the fact that that person may have gone through something that I haven't gone through or vice versa. So instead of trying to defend people who are not the living God, we should make a defense of our faith and get right down to a personal level and not try to solve society's problems because society's problems don't solve until individuals get right with God. Right. And I think that's really a misapplication that we fall into as Christians. We really want peace. We really want people to be reconciled with each other. I mean, this is the language we see in the news every day. You know, can't we just get along or find a way to find justice or fairness? And the reality is Jesus promises that he came not to send peace on earth, but to bring a sword. And so the picture of scripture is the Lord coming and taking conquest over the world, which is an affront to so many Christians who want to believe that peace or passivity with the world is possible. There really is no Pacific Christendom. It has to be a conquest, a dominion-oriented Christendom. And the way the scripture defines this or, or shows this is the Christian must be salty. And that the true way that we have peace with this world is that salty Christian goes into the world and transforms all of the rotten and dying pieces into Christ's kingdom. And so rather than trying to balance the power of Christians get this piece and non-Christians get that piece, Christ has really demanded everything. And he has said that the only way there will be civility, justice, truth, righteousness, that covers the world is when all people come under his perfect reign. So that means we should pay attention to our words. You know how the thing is, they always tell children, use your words, use your words. We should use our words and we should use them wisely because we're told everything we say will come before us in judgment. So think about it. When given the opportunity to speak socially or casually, do we insert topics that will get people to the idea that the greatest sin that anyone can commit is failing to love God with their whole being, their whole heart, mind, soul, and strength? If we waste time on which team is the better team or how are the polls showing our candidate or not candidate, in other words, if we're failing to use the opportunities that are in front of us because we hide under the idea of, well, you know, if you talk religion or politics, then, you know, things get bad quickly. Or if you talk religion and politics from a biblical world and life view and you care enough about the people who are in front of you, then you're making good use of your words, good use of your time, and the blood won't be on your hands. Right. Well, and... You talk about the, this commandment to love the Lord, uh, but the second greatest commandment, I think, is also important in evangelism of loving other people. And part of the Christian call of loving other people is this call to rescue them from sin. The book of Proverbs says that not only is sin you know, ethically wrong, not only is it the wrong direction, the wrong party to be on, but that he that sinneth against God wrongeth his own soul. 
So the Christian, when they hear the commandment to love their neighbor, should have the attitude that they need to remind them, draw them into the conflict, point out the error of their ways, because that person who's in their sin is actually, in one sense, suicidal. You know, that that immoral conflict, that immoral sin that's inside of them is not just damaging them because it's the wrong political point of view or the wrong doctrinal view, but really the scripture says their sin is destroying what God created them to be, that these sins are deformations, torturing that soul from what their human, really human vitality ought to be. And so not only are we to to serve and to point to the truth because God calls us to, but we can't be so narrow-minded to allow people to die in despair in the self-torture that is their sin. So we got to go through those uncomfortable confrontations, the ones that break up peace in families and common company to say, without God and without obedience to his covenant, all men are just falling towards death and destruction. And one of the things I've observed is, and this usually you hear people talk about it at family gatherings, you know, that they're going to have to sit with uncle so-and-so. And if they happen to be, you know, a liberal, then they don't like uncle so-and-so because he's conservative. Or if they happen to be conservative, they don't like uncle so-and-so because he's liberal. And, and so people in the family are like, do we have to argue? Do we have to go through this? Well, there's a difference between arguing in the sense of presenting ideas and substantiating your ideas and being argumentative just to irritate people. And I do think that it's important to realize that sometimes when we are dialoguing with other people, the people who are not talking or contributing are most definitely listening. And I think the ability to have talking points that help people then formulate a way to articulate what they believe, it becomes a modeling exercise and a good one. And so we can disagree with somebody across the Thanksgiving table or across the you know, picnic family reunion and make it clear that we don't hate that person because we don't have to hate that person. We have to hate what God hates And if nothing else, help this person be the warning that says, you know what, you're on the wrong track there, and this is what's going to happen. Just never forget that there are other people listening. And if you can do this in a way that shows that you oftentimes know more about this person's philosophy than they do, that it will give credibility to the fact that you really do care about the person to help them understand they're on the wrong path. I mean, if we come across this, all we want to do is humiliate somebody and make sure other people know how stupid they are, then we have not demonstrated what St. Paul says we should in 1 Corinthians that says, what are the qualities of somebody who is demonstrating the love of God? Right. Well, and you know, back to this whole this idea of, of narrow-mindedness, whether it's good or bad. I think one of the great fears of people expanding their worldview or looking at other ideas is a fear that you might see greener grass. Maybe you'll be reading Nietzsche and you think, well, maybe he had a point. Or maybe you'll read 
uh, Freud and suddenly become enamored with modern psychology. I think that Christians need to have the confidence that every other worldview is insufficient compared to Christianity, that every other worldview, religion, world system, every other way of looking at truth will fall in comparison to Christianity. So we should be aware of those things and see where they lead, which is ultimately destruction, death, depression. And then with that knowledge, be ready because if it's true that Christianity is the only path to peace, happiness, prosperity, fulfillment, contentment, then every other worldview system will offer not that. So the family dinners that lead in arguments because the nephew or cousin or uncle is going the other direction, well, that direction is eventually going to meet its predestined end. And you're the Christian need to be prepared to give an answer, to give a solution, to give hope to the people who find themselves at the end of that really intellectual rope. I think that's true for our culture. You know, as we talk about politics, this election is not the end of the game. We're going to see the consequences of humanism play out and Christians are going to have to be here to rebuild from the rubble. It's going to happen in families and marriages when selfishness finds its way to destruction. Christians have to be there to help husbands and wives rebuild. When the American education system, as it has been for the last hundred years, leads to illiteracy, Christians in the churches and our social organizations have to be the place that rebuild uh, what's been lost as a consequence of following these false idols. And so not a calling to narrow-mindedness, a call to broad reconstruction of all things under Christ and his crown. And to go back to what you said about the fear of reading other worldviews, one of the things that if you've gone through any of Dr. Rushduni's writings, you know he spent time reading authors and books, sometimes obscure ones, but ones he would highlight the depths of the application of a sinful world and life view. So not all of us are ready to dig deeply into the, the enemies of God and praise God that we have teachers and guides and interpreters like Rush Dooney and Calvin and, and other people as well. But I have a student who, after having gone through Rush Dooney's institutes a number of times, has now started going through his footnotes and, and the works he has cited and now feels like she can take on Nietzsche. And as she takes on Nietzsche, she, because she's solid in her faith, she can say, yep, I see it, I see it, I see it. And now in a discussion with other people, she probably knows more about Nietzsche than they know. And they may not even know that they're disciples of Nietzsche because they've never read them. So we do have the ability to stand only when we are standing on the rock first. You can look at other things. But if you aren't willing to take everything and measure it up against God, then you're not going to be able to be of help to yourself, let alone of anybody else. That's right. And as is much the case, the real issue is not intellectual. If we were weighing the intellectual merit of Christianity versus any other world or life view, Christianity wins every single time. The appeal of people like Nietzsche and humanists of all stripes and colors 
is that they offer individuals ethical outs. You know, it's, it's like the young man who goes off to college who suddenly gets a girlfriend and at the same time denies whether or not God exists. It's convenient to believe those things. And just as St. Paul describes there in the book, of, the book of Acts, that these people know deep down in their hearts, they know that all of these abstract intellectual ideas are just an excuse for unrighteousness. When they pray to the unknown God, they were looking for an out. And part of the call of the Christian, as we have said several times now, is to call people to be consistent and to call them towards conviction that these are not really intellectual or honest pursuits, but really ethical outs to escape the reality of the God they know exists. Now, let me just give one caveat to my encouragement at Thanksgiving dinner or the family reunion. And many people have contacted me and say things like, we've been invited to a family gathering, a graduation, a wedding, or something like that. And we know that there is going to be a lesbian or a homosexual who's there with his or her partner. And we don't know what to do because if we bring our kids, what do we say? Do we prepare them ahead of time that this is the person we don't talk to? Or or do we put them and the whole family in an awkward position? And I've always encouraged people to weigh the scriptural benefits or detriments of it. And I have encouraged that they not subject their children to an awkward situation where now this person is going to sit down next to their child and start talking to them. And so what I've encouraged is that they communicate to the host, whether it's their parents or their uncles or their grandparents, and say, look, we are not going to attend because, as you know, this is contrary to our faith. So we won't be attending, but please tell us where to send the gift or congratulations on the graduation. And more often than not, not always, but more often than not, the hosting party writes back and says, we totally understand. Thank you for your point of view. No offense taken. Right. So sometimes just doing the right thing opens the door for somebody to realize that maybe they're not being consistent in their faith. But I wouldn't subject my children to such a situation because it's putting them at risk. And as a parent, you have responsibility to your children. That's right. Again, another, another adage that could be taken to this, that really this idea of fighting or of, of debating or arguing, that's not where the battle is won. Again, to go back to, to Sun Tzu, he says that supreme excellence or the true winning of a battle is when you break the enemy's resistance without fighting. So when you do things like Andrea just described, and you say, we're not even going to come here because we've already decided that that's not an acceptable thing to do. You've declared victory without having to go and to fight the particulars of it. They already know that they've lost. And so by standing by your convictions, you're calling the world to fight you where it really matters, not in the awkwardness of this person forcing their peaceful existence alongside of you, but saying, this is the truth and we're not going to shake on the truth and therefore we've already declared the victory. Yeah. So I I think the takeaway from all this, and by the way, you brought up Sun Tzu, if our listeners have not read The Art of War, I would highly recommend it. Because it's not that it's a 
Christian piece of writing, but it does give you an understanding of how strategies and tactics play out. And you might even discover that somewhere along your life, you have been victim to this particular way of approaching things. But it's, it's, um, it's not a very difficult read, and it opens your eyes to the enemies of God haven't um, given up intellectual high ground, and you see that oftentimes Christians have. That's right. We used to always say in politics, if you're explaining, you're already losing. And so Christians need to take back their presuppositions that Christ owns the world, that he's the true king of everything, and start fighting from that perspective rather than down in the weeds of nonsense and chaos. Right. All right. Well, we started off by referencing Rush Dooney's Salvation and Godly Rule. I'd highly recommend it. My husband and I are currently going through it as our daily devotion. But I also would recommend his book on sovereignty, because when you fully embrace and understand and live out the sovereignty of God, you can proceed in life with a victorious outlook. And I'm not saying that sometimes you might not get pushed down, but coming to terms with that God saves his people because he intends for them to reign on earth and we reign in Jesus' name. Well, it gives you a certainty that says you can walk by faith, even if everything around you looks like it's fallen apart. Right. And as we talk about broadening your mind, you're going to need some categories to do that. And so I'd recommend Abraham Kuyper's Stone Lectures, also called Lectures on Calvinism, which really quickly apply the scripture to you know, different areas of your life, whether it's the family or the church or the state, and show that there are ways to understand how the scripture and its standards speak to these other parts of our world, our worldview. Very good. All right, listeners, thanks for giving us a listen. If you have any comments on this podcast, have something you'd like us to talk about, feel free to get in touch with us at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. We'll talk with you next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.